Hi everyone, Drew Road here with another fantastic interview on the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm here to give you a preview and get you excited about my interview with Josh Gitalis coming up. Josh is a clinical nutritionist based in Toronto, Ontario, one of my favorite cities. Shout out to all my friends over there. And in this episode, we talk about something that many of you have written in and shared that you're very confused about, and that's what should I eat? If you've ever been confused about what to eat, if you've ever been confused about how to figure out the right diet for you, this episode is gonna be a gold mine. Josh is gonna walk us through his exact process for helping people figure out what diet is right for them. You see, in functional medicine, Josh explains that diets are something that we take on temporarily to get to a specific result, to treat a specific set of symptoms, and not something that we necessarily do forever. In fact, something that might work for us today may not be the best thing for us tomorrow. And that's why it's so important to maintain an open mind and constantly ask ourselves, what's the reason that we're taking on this diet in the first place? And Josh helps us understand that in today's podcast. We also jump into a lot of other topics. We talk about how to get kids to eat healthy, how to plan for success for the week ahead when it comes to meal planning and getting our food ready for the diets that we might be on. We also talk about wild food and why it's so important to have it in our diet and the importance of wild food and bitters and mushrooms and all that good stuff. If you're interested in food, if you're confused about food, if you want to listen to one of the people that I think is the most balanced when it comes to this topic, you are listening to the right interview. I hope you enjoy it. And now, on to my introduction for Josh Gitalis. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think will help you improve your brain health, help you feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is Josh Gitalis. Josh, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Little background on Josh. Josh, a clinical nutritionist, is a recognized expert in the fields of clinical detoxification and therapeutic supplementation. He runs a Toronto-based private practice with a worldwide client base. As a leader in his field, Josh teaches clinical nutrition for several natural health colleges and is the first Canadian nutritionist to become an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner. Josh is a noted expert for various media outlets, including CTV News and City TV. Welcome. It's great to have you. Happy to be here. Josh, you have so much knowledge about so many different aspects and all these things play out in different ways and have some connection to brain health. I want to jump around a little bit about some topics that I know that you're passionate about, and I want to start off with mushrooms. And I want to start off with um, the fact that I've heard a little bit from our team that you were into foraging for plants and mushrooms. So tell us why you're into that, What's your, where your love of mushrooms come from. Absolutely. So I think mushrooms can be grouped in the whole world of wild herbs and wild foods. But, um, you know, I started to just look around and, and, and see, you know, a few little things here and there that I knew were good foods or good herbs, just from what I learned in school, and started to think, you know, 
there must be so much more out there, so much more food, so much more medicine around us. Uh, so uh, um, a number of years ago, sort of when I was starting out in the field, I did a six-week herbal medicine internship down in Ohio um, at a place called United Plant Savers, where they have just a, an amazing assortment of herbs growing wild on that land in that particular area. Um, and I got to meet with herbalists of the local area and just get my hands dirty, get in with these herbs that I'd been learning about in books and studies and in school and actually seeing and feeling them and um, getting to know the properties of them using all my senses. And it just took my whole understanding of herbal medicine and wild food to the next level. Now, mushrooms were one part of that. And I would not say I'm a super expert on mushrooms yet, but there are certain mushrooms that you can definitely pick those out. They're not going to be any other mushroom. You don't have a risk of eating the wrong mushroom or taking the wrong mushroom. You know, there's an old saying, um, there's old mushroom hunters and there's bold mushroom hunters, but there's no old bold mushroom hunters. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you have to be very careful, make sure you're, you're choosing the right thing. And, you know, there's some basic medicinal mushrooms that are pretty easy to find, like uh, reishi mushroom and shaga mushroom. We have a lot of that up here in Ontario, um, uh, oyster mushroom and many others. You know, it's funny because I think in North America, most people's first experience with mushrooms is probably on a pizza. <laughs> and here we're trying to expand the palate because we know when people are watching the Broken Brain docuseries, they're listening to all this great information. Still, question that they ask when they're getting started on their journey, same question I'm sure a lot of patients that of yours ask, and the same question that patients in our clinic ask, which is, what the heck do I eat? What right. the heck do I eat? And also, what the heck do I eat is also baked into why do I need to eat it? It's an educational piece. So I want to expand on this idea of mushrooms and you know, go to this large idea of like plant foods as a whole and even medicinal plants, wild plants. What do we know about those categories of food and brain health? Why are they important to the brain? Right. Well, let's just talk about what wild food is for a moment and then we'll move to that because I think it's important to understand that all of our food was essentially wild at one point. We call it wild now, but it was just normal before. Exactly. You know, we've propagated it and farmed it to uh, accentuate certain properties. Like we really enjoy the flavor of sweet. So we've changed a lot of these foods or, or, or bred them over, you know, thousands of years to have a lot more sweet and a lot less bitter. Now, the unfortunate part is that oftentimes the bitter in the food is actually where the medicine is. So I can give a few examples like um, iceberg lettuce, you know, is basically just crunchy water. But if we look back at its ancestry, wild lettuce and dandelion, which is, you know, often wild, is has about like 40 times the amount of antioxidants and powerful constituents as the iceberg lettuce. We all know that dandelion leaf, for those who have tried it, is incredibly bitter. Um, and if you go out into the wild and look up wild lettuce or try to eat it, you probably wouldn't get past one leaf. But that lettuce is actually a powerful medicinal herb. It has some uh, anti-pain uh, uh, activity. Um, and uh, and that a lot of that is in that bitter principle. So unfortunately, we've bred a lot of that out. We also get that from foods like berries. So, you know, most people, you know, go to the grocery store and get some blueberries and they're like the size of grapes these days. You know, you can bite into it and, you know, have a few bites in, in one handful. So 
the original blueberry, which is the chokeberry, it had like 34 times the amount of antioxidants as today's just conventional, regular blueberry. Um, you know, a tomato, the original tomato was like the size of a blueberry and grew up in the mountains in South America. And now it's this big, juicy, you know, tasteless thing that we use really only one variety. So there's actually an amazing book written called Eating on the Wild Side by Joe Robinson. And she also post, uh, published an article in the New York Times in, I believe it was 2000. 13 or 2015 and uh, she talks about all these foods and where they came from and how to find the most nutrient-dense foods in our grocery store not compromising on that taste and flavor so that that all that taste and flavor that was in our wild foods have the nutrients have the medicinal constituents that help our body heal and keep our bodies strong all the important phytochemicals and other things that we don't even have a name for it because science yet hasn't been able to isolate it and give it a name. And also, uh, beyond just making things more bland, like iceberg lettuce and tomatoes, bland and predictable, which is what the industrialized system needed, there's often varietals that have been chosen for their lack of ability to be bruised on the way to the grocery store because they're brighter red and people don't want to eat that dull apple, even though it has way more phytonutrients inside of it and is more wild and is smaller. But isn't always perfectly round and red like the things that we're used to. So it's 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 like what I'm hearing from you. It's like it's a product of making the system kind of the same, which is what the industrial system does, and the consequence of that. Because we just used to think, well, this tomato is the same, is even bigger than this other tomato. But nobody ever really really looked at the nutrient value. And now because of that, we're suffering. What happens in our lives when we don't have some of those nutrients in them, like just speaking broad picture, what happens to us? Like what's the true consequence for us and for the listener that's there if they don't have some of these foods inside of their diet? Right. Well, uh, two simple words that would sum it up is nutrient deficiency, but that also, you know, that represents a whole bunch of other consequences. If we think about what our biology was based on and developed on thousands of years ago, you know, we've been homo sapiens here for like two and a half million years. Um, you know, our genes required a certain set of nutrients, a certain nutrient density. And I often describe this as, you know, swimming on the surface of the water. You know, you go for a nice swim, you feel strong, you've got your goggles on, you're doing your lengths and, and you're, you're doing great. And you're, you're out for your swim, you're doing your breaststroke, your side stroke. Um, and that's sort of equivalent to the baseline of what food is supposed to be and what it used to be. But as we start to choose sweeter foods, as we start to choose less nutritious foods, all of a sudden we're not as strong on that surface. And then we're adding chemicals and we're starting to get a little bit under and we're coming up for air a little bit here and there. And then we're, you know, genetically modifying and then we're depleting the soil and they're not getting the nutrients and we start to sink further and further and further until we're drowning. So what our genes require is the food that was there many, many years ago. That's why we want to try to find that nutrient density and try to get back to uh, how our biology best operates. So you talked about bitters. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about bitters is that, I mean, a lot of people don't like bitters and they're not used to it. And throughout our culture, you know, I come from an Indian background. And from the time I was young, it's like, okay, you have to eat this thing that's bitter that you don't like because it's good for this or it's part of this tradition. 
Um, many people today aren't growing up with those bitters, and so they don't develop some sort of some sort of taste. When when you talk about the benefits of bitters, but you have patients who come to see you who have a hard time with it, what are some of the things that you do to begin to start to help them appreciate and go on that journey to start to enjoy things like dandelion, other dark green leafy vegetables, or other foods that might be bitter and have those benefits? Well, the cool thing is our taste buds are somewhat adaptable, okay? So that could be for better or for worse. When people eat a lot of sweet and they bring that in, um, eating refined sugar and lots of carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, they start to want more of that and their taste buds sort of change. But when you start taking that out and bringing in other flavors like bitter, you start to retrain the taste buds to find those types of um, flavors and, and those tastes. So one of the great things I like to do with my clients in the first month is we just do a sugar detox, you know, anything that's an added sweetener. So we're talking about not just refined sugar, but, you know, coconut sugar, honey, maple syrup, even stevia to re-educate the taste buds in appreciating some of these other flavors. And then we start to bring some of these bitter principles in, like, you know, arugula, endive, um, dandelion greens, if they're so bold to try that one out, uh, and start to, you know, um, give the palate a much larger variety, a much bigger um, variety of, of flavors to come in. It's almost like training your palate, like if you were learning how to taste the different notes inside of wine, you know, it just takes some time to do it. Uh, before we go further, I want to start off with a little bit broader of a component. You know, Dr. Hyman's last book was called Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? And the core premise was that we're all so confused. You know, I'm sure you get people that come to you every day that have read this headline or that headline, see the conflicting things, see a documentary on veganism, on Netflix, see this aspect. I think it was just even a couple of weeks ago that a, a physician from Harvard came out and said that taking coconut oil is one of the worst things you could do for your health, right? Uh, what are your theories on, you know, what led to this confusion that everybody has where everybody's asking like, what should I do? And I'm so confused about this most fundamental aspect, which we've done for thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, which is, which is eating. And how can we also cut through the confusion as listeners to this podcast? Well, you used a really great word and you said fundamental, right? It's all about the fundamentals and what's actually at the root of all of this. We like to get on these different trends. It's fun. It's sexy to say, hey, the ketogenic diet is going to help you lose weight and it's the next thing. Everyone should be on it. Or, you know, back in the day, veganism was a lot more popular. Now, intermittent fasting is sort of the latest thing. So, and then, you know, there was the coconut oil craze and agave and like there's all these different superfoods that come out and people just want to jump on because it's sexy and you think that if you use that one food, it's going to really change your health. But if we go to the local bookstore and we buy all of the diet books and we put them on a table and look for common theme, themes, most of them are saying, get the crap out, get the, stu- the refined sugar, the processed foods, the, 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 the stuff that what I call and what Michael Pollan calls, actually, I got it from him, Franken foods, and bring in lots of whole foods right? Fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, um, and then choose your protein um, based on how you want to. But just eat good whole foods. And unfortunately, that's not that sexy. It's not that interesting. But if you do that, that's the fundamentals and that's the base. And then you can go on 
to the next thing and refine a little bit. It's like, you know, if, if you want to have a, a, a car to take you from A to B, you don't go and give it a, a, a beautiful paint job first. You don't go and put like a fender on it and get a, a killer sound system. You first want to make sure it has an engine. It has an engine that works. It has the fuel that it needs. It's got, you know, a brake and, uh, and an accelerator and a steering wheel that work. And then once you've got all those nailed down for your vehicle, then you can go and, and start to work with the bells and whistles. But unfortunately, most people, because of how the media portrays dietary fads, are focusing on the bells and whistles. And that's a moving target for most people. And they're not really nailing down the fundamentals. And it seems also, too, there's this, whether it's through people's, whether it's some sort of dogma, and I mean that just in a general term of somebody has a fixed methodology of how they see everybody should be eating or a belief system, um, there's, there's also a whole group of sort of schools of thoughts out there that everybody should be doing this. Everybody should be doing that. And in functional medicine, it's a lot more personalized because people are different. I love what you do in your practice, which is putting people on an initial program. You were mentioning the one of getting them off of sugar. Sure, there's more to it than that, of course. And then seeing, you know, what does this person individually need? Because would you say as a nutritionist in your experience that you found that people are different and there's no one type of diet for everybody? Absolutely, 100%. And what are some yeah. of the examples that you look for when patients are working for you? What are some ways that listeners here can understand that? What are specific ways that you see that people are different um, in, in your testing and your way of approaching it that factors into how you might help them find the right way to eat for them? Yeah. Well, interesting. Uh, well, that's a great question because, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I had a client come in and we were doing their history and intake. And she said that a practitioner recommended that she go on the ketogenic diet and her uh, cognition has not been the same since, right? So interesting. We're talking about brain here. Yeah. Um, uh, and she just, it, it, it disrupted her in such a way that it wasn't right for her. And there's many reasons why that's possible. Probably there's some dysbiosis there, maybe uh, some endotoxemia we were talking about and looking into. But, um, you know, obviously that diet wasn't right for her. And sometimes a diet isn't right for someone at a certain point in their life. So it's not just that it's not right for that person. It just may not be right for that person at that time. Right. Like there's a recommendation that people who are trying to get pregnant and women shouldn't be doing the ketogenic diet. Even some of the founders of like early keto before it was keto say that they don't live like that forever. They kind of have the ability to cycle in and out. And when it's not serving them, they don't do it. So mm -hmm. I think that's a, I think that's such a huge point and such an interesting point. I want to make sure that that people really understand it and take it in is that something that could be right for you may not be right for you right now. Absolutely. You know, we, I have a database of diets I use with clients. So everyone gets some sort of framework that's going to best suit their main concern. And we've got the ketogenic diet in our database, the, you know, the paleo diet, we've got something called the tracked diet, um, from, um, from a, a doctor, John Hopkins, who's a functional medicine, uh, gastroenterologist. We have the rainbow diet. We have the anti-inflammatory diet. We have so many different approaches. We have the FODMAPS diet, the specific carbohydrate diet, many different approaches all to really get the body to heal. And different ones will apply to different people at different times to promote that healing. 
And again, you know, you know, the media and with these fads, everyone starts to jump on one specific diet. And and sometimes it takes a little bit to find out what's right for you. But, uh, you know, you really got to make it personalized. Because it's not just about your preferences and what foods you like to eat and not eat, although that plays a part into it too. And a good nutritionist, good clinical nutritionist is going to work around with it because so much of health is behavior change and you never want to make people miserable you know, long term, otherwise they're not going to stick to it. But another part of it is like, um, let's take, for instance, the FODMAP diet. You might put people who are dealing with specific medical issues on a FODMAP diet. Let's just use that as an example, because that's a little bit new, I'm sure, to some of our audience. What is the FODMAP diet and what are some instances that you might use it for somebody? Right. So the FODMAP diet takes out a whole variety of specific carbohydrates that certain people can't digest. It's It stands for fructo, oligo, di, mono, and polyols, FODMAP. So it's representing uh, this group of carbohydrates, and it's often related to what's going on in the digestive tract and what type of population of bacteria are there and how they process these carbohydrates. So typically, these people have irritable bowel syndrome, and when they eat these carbohydrates, because their bacteria is in a certain balance, um, they, those bacteria eat those carbohydrates, cause gases and cause a certain digestive upset. So typically what we do is we, um, put them on this FODMAPS diet. Of course, in our intake and history, we're looking for certain issues with, with specific foods from this food group, like mushrooms, cruciferous vegetables, and certain fruits. Uh, and then sometimes even avocado. Yeah. Be- avocado, this thing that people think is like, <laughs> if I would pick one thing that's the symbolism of sort of the modern health movement, you know, one, you know, I guess it's technically a fruit, right? A uh, fruit, it'd be avocado, right? All these memes online on Instagram, they're all about like avocados and things like that. So this avocado, which is, can be such a healthy food and is such a healthy food for some people, you're taking it out for people on the FODMAP diet because it's not healthy for them. Yeah, and the whole cruciferous family, which is probably the most powerful group of vegetables, you know, for anti-cancer effects and hormone detoxification. So what's important to understand is that FODMAPs diet, we don't want them on it forever. We want to take out the foods that might be exacerbating the symptoms. And then as we're bringing balance back to the body, as we're changing the internal environment, uh, doing some digestive healing protocols, uh, which summarized as weeding, seeding, and feeding, um, we start to get to a point where they can now tolerate a lot of these carbohydrates a lot better, which they should. You know, that that's showing function. We're going from dysfunction to function. Um, and then we can reintroduce them, bring them back, and they can eat more of a you know, regular diet, uh, yeah, the way it are, should be. These are therapeutic diets. You use them almost the same way that you, somebody might see a, a prescription drug that they're giving to somebody for a set period of time, except these are obviously dealing with the root issues that are there. And then when it's no longer needed, you pull away again. I think that's a second, like really big idea from what you're sharing. That is so important for people to understand because even something like ketogenic, you know, I shared in an earlier podcast, we had my a physician at our practice, the ultra wellness center come on, who's also the physician for my mom. And my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And, uh, through having a few different people working with her, uh, our doctor, Dr. Liz Bohm put her on essentially like a ketogenic diet and had her on that. She did that for about a year. And, you know, people ask me now, like, is your mom still on a ketogenic diet? Well, that's what she needed then. And with her being better and with her cancer being under control, she's on a different diet. 
both for lifestyle, both for other components, other things like that. So you never in your clinic look at something as a forever for somebody. You're always looking at what does this person need in this moment right now? And, Correct. and Correct. you know, I think it's so key to understand that because it's just completely different from what you see, you see out there. So just going back to the FODMAP example, you might have somebody on there until until what? What do you start to notice? You might think, okay, we can start to expand a little bit of what they eat and we can bring it back in some of these foods that we remove. For sure. So we're always listening to the symptoms of the body. You know, I'm speaking English to you today. You understand me. That's my language. But the body speaks the language of symptom. So if we know how to listen and understand that language, we can learn a lot from it. The key thing that I'm monitoring and listening to with my client is their symptoms. So are symptoms improving when they're on this diet? And if the answer is yes, we maintain the diet until they've reached a plateau, until they've been symptom-free for a period of time. We're looking usually for about at least a month. And then we start to do a sequential reintroduction of the different carbohydrates in the FODMAP diet, as an example. And we see how they respond. If they are still experiencing some symptoms, then we pull back out and we investigate further and maybe do some other interventions. And if they're tolerating it, then they become part of the diet again. So it's always about listening to the body and uh, having that conversation uh, with the symptoms and, and moving up what I call the slope of health. A big part of your practice, first and foremost, is listening. You know, just being a good listener to your patients, doing a proper intake and hearing them out. But what's different between regular, maybe nutritionist, traditionally trained, and somebody like yourself in functional medicine is sometimes you'll use testing. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about testing and where that plays a role in helping you to figure out what might be the right way for somebody to eat and ultimately feel better. Right. So testing is something that we use in my practice when the symptoms are no longer as reliable or we have to dig deeper. Um, I personally think that in the functional medicine world, people are testing way too often. I have people coming to me from other practitioners or they've been around, you know, they're trying to figure things out and they come with me with a pile of tests. I look through them. There's some good discoveries in there. And I say, did you do anything about these? You know, where's the protocols? And they said, no, not really. We just did some testing and you know, to, to dig a little bit deeper. But when used in the right way, they can be incredibly valuable. Um, and there's all sorts of testing. I think, you know, we could go into this, you know, let's talk about some of the fundamentals yeah. that you might look at. Cause I think it's Absolutely. always nice for listeners to get examples. What are some of the basic ones that you might do just to start off with? for sure? So, uh, like a digestive stool analysis, we use something called the GI map, which gives us a snapshot of the good bacteria, the bad bacteria, yeast, fungus, things like H. pylori, parasites. Um, and then it looks at some of the uh, actions that are happening happening along the digestive tract, like inflammatory activation. Uh, looks at how well the pancreas is making enzymes. Um, so, so we get a really good idea of what might be happening in the digestive tract, and then we can go and target it a lot better um, versus if we only had symptoms to go on. And, and I think one thing that's important to that, and would love you to expand on it, is that sometimes you find a patient might be doing the right thing, but there's something that's blocking it or preventing that sort of function from happening in the, in the body. Can you think of an example where somebody thinks that they might be doing the right thing, but there's some sort of other deeper issue that they would have, have known about when it comes to their, their diet? This is so important. I'm so happy you brought this up because I tell my clients this all the time that you can do the right things, but if you do them in the wrong order, they won't work 
right? So a lot of the times people are doing great things like taking a probiotic. But if they still haven't dealt with a parasite or a pathogenic bacteria that might be in there, or they haven't restored uh, the enzymes in their system, or they're not making enough stomach acid, you know, it'll help mask some of the symptoms. It'll help keep them a little bit more in balance, but it'll never get to the root. So you, when we're specifically talking about digestive healing, uh, one of the first steps is what I was talking about before, the weeding, and that's taking out the bad guys. You know, in your digestive tract and actually all over your body, you've got a microbiome and there's a certain amount of real estate. And if someone's in your parking spot, you first have to get them out of your parking spot before you can park there. Mm -hmm. So if there's pathogenic bacteria or microorganisms in your gut, you have to use sometimes some antimicrobial herbs, sometimes even pharmaceuticals to kill those, get them out, clear out the real estate. So then you can go and seed that real estate and then feed it with uh, some food to really do it. But if you're just seeding with those probiotics, but you haven't removed the bad guys yet, you might not be able to make much progress there. Tell me about your personal journey a little bit. How did you ultimately end up in this place where now you can understand the depth of what it's like to put a personalized program on people? Did you go through a healing crisis yourself? Give me the origin story of where Josh came from. Yeah, so a lot of people in this field have some crazy story. <laughs> My wife actually has a one of those stories where she had Crohn's disease and went to 19 doctors, didn't find any relief and then ended up just, you know, actually going to California to the to the Santa Monica area, getting acupuncture every day, learning how to cook, learning how to eat whole foods and she healed herself within uh, three weeks and has been symptom free. Was this uh, after you two were married or before? This is oh, much after. I actually okay. met her in nutrition school. Oh, I wow. guess that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> and but, is it through yeah. meeting her that you ultimately started to learn a little bit more about the space? Um, no, I was actually learning before that. I'm just saying that that was okay, got like it. she has one of those That's stories. her crazy story. Yeah. But for myself, I've just always been interested in biology and the body and health and when I, when I think back to my younger years, I was always interested in possibly being a detective, like a police officer, an undercover mm. cop, something like that. So I feel like now, you know, tr always trying to dig deeper, figure out what's going on in the body. That's kind of my undercover copness coming through and, and, you know, trying to put the pieces together. And that's what it's really all about. When I put a protocol together, when I dig into their history, it's, it's building a case. And this is what I tell my students. You can't really just go off one piece of evidence. Um, you have to find multiple pieces of evidence that point in a direction before you make a recommendation to try to get to the root cause. So, you know, my constant quest to find the latest and greatest information and to just better myself as a practitioner and just to dig deeper, find out more of the mechanisms and the root causes of things has really fueled a lot of my journey. That's great. I love the emphasis on both finding new information to support the ideas and maybe, you know, change a little bit of the way that we think too, but also sticking to the fundamentals that we've just had so much years of history and humanity to know that, well, most likely we probably weren't eating this way or living this way before. And the combination of the two removes the noise. Cause I think that's what everybody's looking for. And the people that are listening to the podcast, it's like, how do I, I hear about all these new tips and tricks and I hear about these foods that are great and I've never heard of MCT oil, right? But I'm hearing that it's simple, focus on whole foods, focus on the, on the basics, you know, how do you help your patients understand that like both of those things are, are important and finding out 
that they can just start simply, but still be curious and interested about other stuff? Is there ways to think about it? Because I, I guess here's what I'm really saying. Here's the question. <laughs> I get a little wordy at times. <laughs> people have food anxiety. Mm. How do you help people get over their food anxiety? Right. So, you know, when I put the first protocol together and we meet for the first time, a lot of that is the fundamentals. I don't really like to do seven-day diets with specific foods following it uh, meal for meal. We usually address larger concepts. You know, I always get a diet diary from someone at least five days, and we start there. I look at their diet, and I just pick it apart and say, hey, you know, you can swap this out for that, or let's in, increase some vegetables, or let's uh, increase the variety and the colors that are in your um, diet. So a lot of the focus is on how you can add and how you can improve what's going on in the diet. Um, yes, we definitely talk about things to take out, um, some non-negotiables like gluten, uh, dairy for most people. Those two are out right from the start. Sugar, uh, because they can affect so many people. But then a huge part of it is, okay, now what can we bring in? You know, sometimes I do give food lists where avoid this, have this. And usually what I say is just really focus on what you can have and eat lots of that. Hey, you're looking for big picture themes, fundamentals that are there. So when you look at somebody's three-day diet diary mm. and you're looking for some of those themes, broad strokes, what are some common themes that you see from this day and age of how we live and how we eat? Yeah. So here in Canada, we have something called the Canada Food Guide. And I know, I think in the U.S., you have the food pyramid. Right? Yeah, which then changed to uh, the plate, like the food plate right. or something. But yeah, just changing origins. the shapes of these all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I hate them. They're horrible and they really don't help many people. But one thing that they all have in common is to eat a ton of fru fruits and vegetables, right? Like every dietary principle says just eat lots of those. So no one can really go wrong by getting a lot of those in. Everyone knows it. Many people don't necessarily know how to do it. I know this isn't, again, a, a sexy tip for your, your listeners. They're not going to be like... We always want truth. We don't, <laughs> you know, let's give them the truth instead of the sexiness. Yeah, they're not going to be like, oh, I heard Josh on the other podcast and he said, eat more vegetables. Um, we should really try that. No, um, but you really can't go wrong. Uh, you know, some real... And, and I'm just always... In my own life and in my clients, I'm just trying to think of easy ways to get a lot in. So, you know, something I've been thinking about lately is there's certain greens that just shrink down. They just reduce down. Like you could throw like five handfuls of it in a pan and they shrink down like arugula, mm -hmm. you know, kale, spinach. Like those three greens, you can get so much in and it's just so easy to, to pack that nutrition in um, just by, you know, throwing a few handfuls of that in with every meal. And greens aren't just this like, oh, it's your vitamins and your nutrients. They play such a deeper role. And I think this is important for people to hear because, of course, we've talked about paleo diets. We've talked about ketogenic. And the tendency is sometimes people go a little bit, they might be cutting out grains and dairy and gluten. So they feel a little bit better from that. And they're just having a lot of meat, which mm -hmm. isn't really the goal. So tell us and help us understand why greens are so important beyond just like the simple things that our government tells us. And what role do they play in like the microbiome? Right. So greens have a huge amount of soluble fiber and our microbiome, the good guys in there, love to eat soluble fiber. It's their food. You know, there's a saying, you are what you eat, but you actually 
more are what your bacteria and your gut eat because they have so many interactions with your food before they that food actually enters your bloodstream. So we've got soluble fiber. We've got amazing minerals like magnesium. You know, wherever we see green, dark green colors, we can think about chlorophyll and we can think about magnesium because chlorophyll is actually very similar to our blood, to our hemoglobin. And instead of the iron in that molecule, in the, in the chlorophyll, we have magnesium. So magnesium and most people in uh, westernized countries are deficient in magnesium such an important mineral for so many different enzymatic pathways. So why not load up on that one? What are the ways that you integrate greens? You know, your office is just down the street. Um, you know, I can remember coming to Toronto many, many years ago. Wasn't a lot of options. There's more options that are available. Um, how do you find ways to get greens? It's all about the practical. How do you find ways to incorporate greens into your diet throughout, throughout the day? And, um, yeah, I think our listeners would be super curious. Yeah, well, most meals, there's a salad component involved. Um, I know you like green juices, so green juice is a, is a wonderful way. That reduction thing with, with you know, sauteing some of those greens up are, is, is another fantastic way. Um, but your salad looks a little bit different than the typical, you know, I don't know if they serve salad at Tim Hortons. I've right. been seeing it everywhere, but I don't know too much about it. But let's say McDonald's, for those who are familiar with McDonald's, it's not tomatoes, cucumbers, and iceberg lettuce. What's your salad look like? Right. It's it's the darker greens like arugula, kale, um, I guess are some of the most common. Usually uh, my wife and I will do food prep on a Sunday for a few hours, and we like to get a couple heads of kale, chop it up, give it a good massage with some lemon oil and, and or lemon oil with lemon juice and, and sea salt. And kale is super hearty, so it lasts throughout the whole week. And then it's just in that Tupperware ready to go. Um, glass Tupperware, of course, <laughs> ready to go. And we just take a handful of that, throw it in a container, put some, you know, fresh leafy greens. Right now, um, we're in September. So we have this abundant variety of stuff coming in the farmer's market. Amazing greens coming from there. Uh, this year, we actually had the first, our first opportunity to plant a wonderful garden. So we're pulling greens from there as well, which is so satisfying. Mm. Uh, so there's, yeah, so many opportunities to do it. Uh, you just got to have, you have to make it a part of your routine. I think that's the, the key. And I think that what you and your wife do, which is meal prep on a Sunday, you know, we were, ne I can remember growing up, you know, cooking was a big part of our household, but my, my mom never made, you know, food for every, like there was always food for every meal, but she wasn't cooking for every meal. It was usually she was cooking a bunch in advance and keeping some stuff aside that we could use in bulk for later on in the week. Here I'm hearing that, you know, kale that you guys throw into a bunch of different stuff you're making in the beginning. Um, how do you help your clients that are having challenges just imagining where are they going to find the time to make food and how they make it a part of their their habit. If they haven't had this experience, like what are some of the tips that you give to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So meal prep, that's probably one of the best tips I can, I can give because then you're thinking about it before the week comes, you know, most people don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. So if we set that two hours of so aside on a Sunday, uh, it's amazing how much you can accomplish in that period of time. And then you're saving tons of time during the week. Like if you want to have those exact same meals that you've prepped on a Sunday throughout the week, it's going to take you probably double the time. So that's just a practical tip um, that, again, if you plan for it every weekend, it's going to make a huge difference. And the cool thing about these things is you get compounding health interest is what I called, call it. So 
it's it's a small thing that you do that's going to make a huge difference over weeks, months, years, lifetime. Um, so that that would be uh, one tip that we do. And then if people can't don't have the time, they're going to have to pay someone else who has the time. I mean, those are really the only two options, and you have to figure out how to do that. So there's great meal services here in Toronto that some of my clients will use if they have the the funds to do that, um, and they don't have the time to meal prep. But again, if they don't have the funds, they have to do the meal prep, and that's the only way really to get good healthy food throughout the week. I think sometimes we have to even question the idea of how much time things take. You know, when you order Uber Eats uh-huh. and you have them deliver, even from a healthy restaurant, uh, first of all, it's more expensive, of course, than making it at home. Second of all, you know, the fastest you're going to get in is 30 minutes. It takes about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Or if you drive to a fast food restaurant, you know, people have to get in their car. They have to drive over. They have to pick up the food. If you're not going to eat there and you're going to eat with your family, you have to bring it back. Or even just forget fast food. There's plenty of people on here that go to places that are semi-healthy, Chipotle, other places, Mm -hmm. things like that. How much time do you spend when you're actually like making a meal? You know, how much time are you spending like putting together a meal that's delicious and tastes, you know, tastes great? Is it always like 30 minutes to an hour? Yeah, it really depends. You know, we have very busy lives uh, as well. Me and my wife, we both have our own businesses. So you know, sometimes we only have 15 minutes. Sometimes we, we, we don't have much time. I love to cook. My wife likes to cook as well. So when we do have more time, we like to take longer. But we, again, try to plan ahead. We've done, we do a lot of batch cooking uh, when we have the time as well. When there's uh, quieter times in our year, uh, we, you know, we will fill the freezers. We'll, we'll, we'll get stuff ready. In fact, before, so we have a 14-month-year-old boy. And before my uh before we we had the boy uh, over a year ago we just like totally stacked our freezer because we knew that we weren't gonna have time to cook fresh food all the time so we made you know um awesome tomato sauces and bolognese and and um you know uh, bone broths um and uh, we prepared like veggie burgers and bison burgers and and froze it all, all the stuff that's so easy to freeze. We did big batches of stuff in the slow cooker. And it took us actually like months upon months to actually get through all that stuff. Um, it's Megan, almost like you spend less time. The way you guys make food, you spend less time thinking about food, less time with sure. food on your mind, less time preparing food. It's not like you're obsessed with food and you're thinking about it all day and you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out what to eat, which is what most people do. Yeah, I felt sometimes like I was cheating. Right, like because it was too easy. Yeah, we were like, "Oh, what are we gonna do for dinner? Oh, we have that meal that we did in the freezer. We'll pull that out and we'll add some of these veggies, and here we go." And I kind of thought like that was almost too easy. So, <laughs> a little planning can can go a, a long way. Uh, let's just talk about it because you mentioned it. Freezing. Mm-hmm. People are very confused about freezing and whether or not it's okay, and to use the freezer. I think for a long time, um, as maybe part of the modern health movement people have had some sort of association with freezing food as maybe the same thing as frozen food, which is completely different. It's made into a, you know, um, made in a factory, that sort of stuff. So, so give us the lowdown on, on freezing. I've heard it a bunch in, in kind of how you talk about meal prep. Uh, what are the advantages and, um, and is frozen food okay that you're making yourself? Uh, yes, it is totally awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you will lose a small amount of nutrition when you freeze, but not that much, um, especially when you freeze fresh stuff. So we just got 
32 pounds of wild blueberries. Wow. And I did all sorts of things with them. I was posting on social media, asking people for suggestions. <laughs> I froze most of those berries because they just looked so amazing. Like they were super small, right? Like I knew they were a good legit batch. Mm. Um, I tried to do it every year. I've been doing it for the past few years. So I froze most of those. And now we have some awesome bags of wild blueberries in our freezer. Uh, I was also making like fruit leather with the blueberries, which is super delicious. You know, I did some fresh stuff like we did some muffins. I've done pancakes with it. Um, what else have I done? And anyway, so I, I have those there. Fruits are awesome to do when they're in season. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of the other, you know, sauces and, and burgers and stuff, you're not going to lose any nutrition in the freezing process. Um, they, it freezes really well. And again, super easy to pull out. So I'm not too worried about the nutrition lost in, in freezing foods. Um, on a practical level, do you have a whole separate uh, freezer? You know, I've, I've heard a lot of things that get frozen. So do you just use a normal size refrigerator? Do you, uh, do you, uh, cause I think people are, I think sometimes it's like, trying to make the space or actually make sure you have the tools to enable it. So, uh, with a household of three, mm -hmm. um, and, and one of them being a young, a young, uh, boy, uh, what's the practicality of it? Right. So I think the freezer, an extra freezer. So we have a fridge with a freezer, yep. but an extra freezer deep freeze was one of the best investments we've ever made. I mean, that thing has just saved us so many times and, and it's just uh, a key part of our whole nutrition regimen and making sure we have healthy stuff all the time doesn't take up a lot of space. We keep it in the basement. We're in a, in a semi in Toronto, so there's not a lot of space to begin with. Yeah. Um, but a really key item that we've devoted and given a little bit of space in our home to and an investment we're really proud of. Uh, one of the other really key investments, I'm just throwing this out there, that we, that we are super happy with in our home was an infrared sauna a number of years ago. Oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine in Toronto that goes a long way. Totally. Anywhere goes a long way. And we'll talk a little bit more about infrared and that sort of thing. But um, I want to talk about a, a couple other hacks because you're great at making these things practical. And, and sometimes there's tools that are out there that make it easier to live this lifestyle. Um, right now on Amazon, it's really popular. Like the, the number top 10 best-selling products, like one of them is like Instapot, mm. right? What do you think of that? Curious about your sort of thoughts. And um, are there any other things that you keep in your household as a family that make it easier to prepare healthy meals on a regular basis? Absolutely, yeah. So I, I think the Instapot's great. We, uh, we use a slow cooker. Uh, we love it. Um, you know, you can do huge amounts at one time. We also um, have a Vitamix, uh, you know, just a high speed blender, which we do like so much stuff with. You can do soups, you know, I do my fruit leather in there. Um, and then of course I dehydrate it afterwards. So those are, I guess, the key appliances that, that we really love um, in terms of sort of beyond the, the basics, fridge, stove, you know, um, burners, things like that. In, in terms of anything above and beyond that, doesn't get used as much, I guess, a food processor, but like our, our Vitamix sort of does the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of like the tool that's helpful for it all. Yeah. Uh, this is super basic, but again, people write in and they have a lot of questions and it's just good to cover it because we have uh. people of all different ages and backgrounds that are listening. But when I pay attention to what are the challenges, the common themes, just cooking is not always, or they're just cooking the same thing again right. and again and again and again. So. Uh, a lot of people didn't grow up with a slow cooker. It's kind of, they kind of get the concept, but they don't. It sounds super basic, but 
why would somebody want to use a slow cooker compared to the traditional way of you know, making, uh, making things. Right. So I think just to simplify it, a slow cooker is a safer way to simmer something for a very long period of time. Right. So I wouldn't typically have my stove on all night long, you know, for 12, or even if I'm making a bone broth 24 hours and leave the house and, and whatnot. But with a slow cooker, it's very safe. Uh, you don't have any elements on any burners on, um, and you can keep that on overnight. So for a practicality reasons, it's, it's super easy to use. We do, you know, uh, bone broths a lot in the Sloan cooker. And, you know, that's going, if you really want a good bone broth for 24 hours, right? By the time you're done that bone broth, the bones are so brittle, you can just like crush them in, in, in your fingers. And that's because all that goodness is going right into the liquid because it has been boiling for so long. Bone broth. Fad. Uh, obviously, you guys make it. So there's a little bit of a loaded question, but... Uh, people see these things out there and sometimes they can think this is a fad. This is a trend next year. It's going to be this, um, give us the lowdown on bro- bone broth. Right. So my background's Jewish. So my grandmother's been making bone broth or was making bone broth for many years. And I'm sure her mother and her mother's mother and all that had been making it for a long time. So, um, I like to say, you know, I'm one of the original bone broth. Drinkers. An OG. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there, uh, and there are certain superfoods yeah. that even if they're fat in the U S they were around elsewhere, for sure. like for kimchi, sure. Like adding, I'm from, I'm from, again, from India and, um, you know, I can remember people putting things like ghee in their tea a little bit, especially when people were sick and other things like that. So adding fat to like coffee. So, um, and, and what are the reasons that you have uh, bone broth? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So bone, like, as I mentioned, you're pulling all the nutrients out of the ligaments and the bones and the tendons and the feet and the neck and all those parts that you wouldn't typically eat. You're getting, uh, amazing uh, sources of collagen from those tissues, which is the most abundant protein in our body uh, and the building blocks to make all of our uh, connective tissues. You're getting uh, tons of minerals, you're getting glycine, you're getting uh, chondroitin, uh, glucosamines, like all this amazing stuff to rebuild our own joints. You're getting uh, amazing minerals. If you're putting other vegetables or herbs in it, you're getting you know um, a variety of uh, nutrients from those. We like to put in um, you know, some goji berries and uh, a little chunk of shaga in there. Um, and sometimes a few mushrooms just to kind of soup up the soup <laughs> and make that bone broth like super powerful. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's the beauty of bone broth and it's a liquid. So it's going to be super, super absorbable for your digestive tract. Let's talk about fat and some of the other foundations of good brain health. This being the Broken Brain Podcast. Some people haven't seen the series yet, and they're just listening to the podcast because a friend recommend, recommended it to them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and help us understand the role that, of, of what are some of the building blocks of the, of the brain and how can we get them inside of our, our diet? Amazing, yeah. We often don't think about the brain as like this raw material that needs certain things in order for it to be built. So yeah, fat is a huge component of the brain. The brain is 60% fat. It's just basically a glob of butter. <laughs> and, um, and then, so now that we know it's made up mostly of fat, we also have to think about the qualities because there's many different types of fats. Now we know that there's two fats that are what are called essential fats, alpha-linolenic acid and alpha-linoleic acid, the omega-3 and omega-6. And from those, we can make every other fat. 
but uh, sometimes it's a bit difficult to convert those fats into some of the longer omega-3s that make up the brain. So for example, out of the 60% of that fat, 8% of that is DHA, which is a long uh, omega-3 fatty acid. Um, and DHA is super important for cognition, for memory, for communication in all of our cells. So, you know, a lot of these fats too are, make up the myelin sheath. They make up the outside of every cell membrane in our body. And that cell membrane is what communicates with other cells. So, you know, um, when I was young, you know, in school, we, we took two cups we put little holes in them. We tied a string to the to one cup to another, and we stood across the room from each other. And people t- spoke in one cup, and you listened in the other. Yeah, you know that's one way of communication. Or you can use the iPhone, right? <laughs> so, like those cups are like trans fatty acids. You know, destroyed cooked fats to make a brain. You're not going to have really good communication. But if you're using the latest technology like an iPhone, which communicates really well, we're talking about DHA and good fats like that to help with 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 those neurotransmitters and, and the, the communication between neurons and between cells. You know, they've they've looked at uh, the breast milk of women uh, right when their babies are born to look at DHA content and that's correlated with the IQ and mental capacity of children when they're eight years old. Wow. So eight years later, right? So this stuff is super important for building a healthy, strong nervous system that's working really well. And why isn't that the first place that we go when we're looking at the health of the brain, the actual building blocks that make the brain? Beautiful. Thank you for breaking <laughs> that down. You know, in the, in the modern health movement, there's a lot of different approaches and methodologies. And there's a lot of people that out there that still believe that fat is bad and have some sort of association with it. And in functional medicine, they're talking about how essential it is to get it in and break it down into, in terms of the actual science. You know, one of the communities, uh, sometimes that puts the de-emphasis, I guess, in the world of veganism, there is, and I was vegan for a long time until I discovered functional medicine and started doing the labs on myself. Um, there's, two schools of thoughts. There's people that are okay and understand a little bit more recent research and say, hey, fat is fat is good. In fact, we want an abundance of the right types of fat in our diet. And there's other ones that say, no, we want to minimize, minimize fat. Um, I can think of people like Dean Ornish and some of the other individuals that are out there. Um, what you're saying is sometimes opposite of what, what they're saying. So as a broad strokes, not any one particular person, Help us understand, like, if we've ever heard or if you've seen, like, What the Health on Netflix. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is another documentary and has, you know, a very specific focus, uh, the vegan focus. Um, and you hear things like, fat is bad for you. You know, we want to reduce the amount of oils and other things like that. Even they don't want you to have too much healthy fats like coconut oil, av- avocados, things like that. What, what's their viewpoint? How did they come to that understanding? And why is that a little bit different than what we're talking about here? I think it's just nice to put things in context for people. Again, we're not trying to pick fights with anybody, right? but you have a particular viewpoint, which is also the similar viewpoint to Dr. Hyman and our series. But help us understand why people feel like they're getting two different sources of, of sort of perspectives on things, like what they think and maybe a little bit more of like why they think that way. Right. Yeah, I think it's, you know, based in their certain beliefs and then they go out and search for that information and there's great information on all aspects, right? Mm. So, you know, I could put together an incredible, well-referenced 
textbook on veganism and why that should be the way, you know, with just like tons of references in the back, pages and pages. I could do the same thing for paleo. I could do the same thing for keto. So you can find the information you're looking for. But I think this all goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that you need to find the right diet for you. So for some people, very, very high fat is going to be incredible. And for some people, very, very low fat is going to be incredible. Um, And what happens is, you know, say I publish a book and my book is entitled Fat is the Best Thing Ever. Everyone everyone should be eating fat. Follow my (laughs) diet, buy my book, buy my programs and buy my products, right? Well, say, you know, a thousand people get that book. I'm going to probably have, you know, 100 people that are going to have miraculous healing from it. They're going to feel amazing from it. They're going to post comments on my social media. They're going to give me testimonials. They're going to tell their friends. And then there's going to be about, you know, 800 people that maybe have some benefits, maybe don't. And then there's probably going to be 100 people that have adverse effects, and it just really is not good for them. But that's not what most people hear about. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy with a lot of these diets that once you hear about something, you go and you seek out that information, right? You go to lectures on that information. You look at webinars on that information. You look at studies. You source experts that confirm that idea that you have. Exactly. So, you know, functional medicine is quite powerful in this respect because sometimes there's certain labs there's certain ways we can dig in and see if that diet is right for that person you know so for example um, a very very cheap easily accessible test that most people can can get access to is a blood fatty acids test right so like omega quant or one of those exactly yeah that's actually what we use in our clinic so um they'll give you a breakdown of where your omega threes and omega sixes and omega nines and trans fatty acids are and you know if you're a vegan and you know you get this test done and your dha and, and epa are you know tanked you know you're not converting properly and that diet probably isn't for you that you have to find some nice whole already converted uh, sources of the DHA and EPA and fish and maybe some seaweeds um, so that you can get those into your body. Um, so yeah, there's th- that's a way of kind of digging in and seeing, you know, is that diet right for me? And that test is great. Uh, it's the mega quant test. We'll make sure we link to it in the show notes. And one of this uh, emerging grant a group of tests that you don't need a practitioner to order. So you people can order it directly themselves and get the results in a pretty easily digestible um, way. Uh, genetic testing. Mm. Genetics is the become more and more popular and people have access to different things. Uh, 23andMe, of course, was one of the biggest ones and they kind of scaled back on some of the health information that they offer. What, what can we learn and what can't we learn from our genetic testing when it comes to our diet? Great question. Yeah. So uh, I think first we have to understand that genes and genetic testing is our genotype not the phenotype, so not necessarily how the gene is expressed. It, it gives us a little information about that book of life. Yeah, there's two. And again, can you break them down? Because you did a little quickly, and for some people, they don't know the difference. So you have your genetics and you have your phenotype. So again, uh, what's the difference between the two? Absolutely, yeah. So the gene is what we see in those tests. It shows us, hey, there's one mutation, so maybe it's uh, that enzyme is affected you know, uh, 30% or there's two mutations. So maybe it's affected 60%, but that information, you know, when you see those red and yellow squares, if people have done the test and they know what I'm talking about, um, isn't necessarily a sentence in any way. It's how that gene is being expressed. 
So one of the most popular genes that everyone's talking about today and is getting a lot of tension is the MTHFR gene. Um, you know, if you have the MTHFR gene where you're not really converting uh, folic acid into its active form properly, um, but you're eating tons of leafy green vegetables, you're doing saunas, you're exercising, you're getting a ton of sleep, you have good relationships, you have good stress management, who cares? You know, you're probably methylating fantastic, right? And that might show up where you have good homocysteine levels, um, which can be a marker of, of, of whether that's uh, functionally uh, being inhibited in your body or not. Um, whereas if you have the MTHFR gene, same gene, but you smoke and you, you know, eat McDonald's every day and you don't exercise, that gene might be expressed completely differently and you might have severe symptoms related to an MTHFR mutation. Same mutation, but different lifestyles and it can affect you differently based on how that lifestyle shows Absolutely. up. Absolutely. That's huge. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a, another really great example is there was a study done in Turin, Italy. There was a chemical plant. Um, and there was a chemical that was leaked and all of the workers got exposed to the exact same chemical. This particular chemical caused bladder cancer. So some of the workers got bladder cancer, some didn't. So they wanted to figure out why they did a case study. And what they discovered is that the, the workers that didn't get bladder cancer had a quicker, uh, detoxification pathway known as acetylation, where they were able to process that toxin a lot more efficiently and therefore have it not harm them. That's amazing because, you know, with the rise of the detox movement, of course, there's tons of fad things in there like detox foot pads and this and that, maybe some misinformation. There was the counterbalance. And I saw this, especially in like England, you know, um, with the medical system over there, uh, there was this counterbalance where people were like, your body detox is fine. There's nothing you need to do to support mm -hmm. it. It's all a joke that you can eat a detox diet, this. But what you're saying is that there's some people that genetically may not detox as well as others. And then I'm guessing that you would probably help and support them and put them on a protocol that would fill the gap. Absolutely. There's uh, a lot of wiggle room there. In uh, Jeffrey Bland's book, Disease Delusion, he cites um, that people can have a 1,000-fold variation in detoxification. Yeah, so um, I was working with a, a client recently who um, is dealing with colon cancer, and uh, we were looking at her genes, and we found that she had a, actually had a glutathione deletion and one other gene that uh, really decreased the amount of glutathione she was making. So, um, so, And what role does glutathione play inside of the body? Yeah, glutathione is very important for detoxification. It's, a, it's one of the most powerful antioxidants, um, a very strong marker of, of age as well. So, and our body creates it. Yeah, exactly. Body makes it. So what we decided to do was to give her straight up glutathione, liposomal glutathione. Now she came back to me. She was also seeing um, a naturopath and the naturopath suggested that she take an acetylcysteine because it's a precursor to glutathione. Um, and we, we know from the studies, it really raises glutathione quite nicely. It's, it, I use it with a lot of people, but because of her specific genetic information that we had received, um, she wouldn't be con doing that conversion as well uh, because of who she was, right? Because of her genes. So we had to go to the, to the glutathione and that's a real life situation where we could really use this information to someone's advantage to give them the best supplements and best protocol possible. Just another reminder that health is so personal and mm -hmm. going back to that detective analogy that you used earlier, 
uh, it's so important to find the detective for you, a functional medicine practitioner or somebody that you can work with, somebody like yourself, Josh, who can help you dig in a little bit more and, and actually find the components that genuinely can make a difference with what you're, what you're dealing with. I want to go back to, to your personal life a little bit. I know you didn't have a crazy sort of story of, of how you got sick, which led to this, which led to that, but everybody's had their sort of dietary adventures, right? How's your, uh, your own personal diet? And again, everything is personal. You eat the way that you need for the time and place in life based on what you're going through. How's it evolved over the years, if at all? Mm, uh, that's a great question. I think in terms of evolution, I've never really been someone to jump on a new fad right away. So I've seen- so you never did like, I think one time the craziest diet I heard was like, you only eat like cabbage or something like that. Yeah. It was like this cabbage, <laughs> cabbage soup diet. Right. That right. was popular, I think in like the nineties. Right. Yeah. Like I like to try, yeah. um, certain protocols. Like sure. I'm, I'm my best guinea pig. In fact, I recently tried a fasting mimicking diet. I could talk about that in one moment, which is yeah. fantastic. But in terms of the long term, I've always just looked at my diet and tried to be as consistent as possible and figure out ways to be as consistent as possible following the principles that I know have stood the test of time. Mm. And that's where I've come up with a lot of my little tips and tricks like we were talking about earlier on how to incorporate more of these foods into our diet. So again, I know it's not that exciting, but um, so I So what you're saying clients, is you're balanced and not yeah. crazy like the rest of us. Exactly. I tell my clients <laughs> low and slow, and we have to have the long game in mind. It's not about a one-month or two-month protocol. It's about doing this stuff for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You know? And if we look at the blue zones, it's, it's, and, and these people who live to 100 and live, are the longest-lived people in the world, they're not jumping around to all these different diets. They're just doing the same thing day in and day out. They're having their little glass of wine at dinner. They're eating their legumes. They're having their fish. They're going for a walk. They're gardening. They have their spiritual practice. They're doing all these things, but consistently. But yes, I do love to experiment. <laughs> and one of the um, experiments that I did recently was what's called the fasting mimicking diet. Yes. Uh, I learned about it um, at a conference, the, the functional medicine conference I attended on autoimmune disease. And I've just been diving into the research. Um, and what I love about it is that you're, you're between your fasts, you're maintaining your own diet. Um, you're really not changing anything there. Um, of course it should be somewhat healthy, right? Like, uh, you know, whole foods diet, but you're, you're, you're taking these five days, um, most are five days to greatly reduce your calories and, and to basically get into ketosis as well to make sure most of your calories are, are fat-based. Um, so I'm still uh, formulating the blog in my head because this is an end of one experience. This was just my personal experience. I rarely write about just my personal experiences. So I'm trying to figure out a way to actually bring this information to the masses and put, put that on my website without... Um, you know, saying everyone should do it. And this is, this will be your experience. I just want to portray my experience and talk a little bit about the background of what it's all about. So I, uh, what started my food journey is that, uh, I was at a talk and a lecture and somebody there was mentioning, and I was in high school at the time as my senior year that, Hey, you know, dairy, and I think it was more brought up from a vegan perspective, but dairy can be very inflammatory. So if you're struggling with acne, get off of dairy and see if something happens. And that was my first experience with somebody telling me that a specific food could be causing something. 
um, to me. So I got off dairy and I also subsequently got off wheat. This is in the year 2000 before like people were talking about gluten-free and things and I didn't really even know what I was doing and my, my skin cleared up. And uh, a big part of functional medicine is that sometimes you might be reactive to a food, but then later on, if you do something like gut repair, which is we talked about in our docu-series, you might get better on. So over the years, I've done gut repair, I've done other things, and it looks pretty good. But still today, even if I have, you know, a little bit of butter in like my, like a bulletproof type coffee, right? I could do MCT oil, but if I have butter... I get little red blemishes on my face and I get some forms of like inflammation that are there. And no matter what anybody tells me about it, I can see some sort of impact in my body. So even if somebody tells me it's healthy, I kind of feel it personally. What, you know, that's my own story, but what's the value that of like listening to what is happening in your own body? And do you have any other examples of that in your own personal life or with clients you've worked with where, you know, what they're experiencing is maybe different than what they're finding through tests or what you know, data is out there. Mm, yeah. Well, one person's food could be another person's poison is basically what you're, you're saying here. Right. Um, and again, what I tell my clients is to listen to the language of the body, the symptoms, you know, I say to them, it doesn't matter what tests we do. Uh, it doesn't matter what anyone else says or what this diet says. If your body is reacting negatively to any food, you need to take that out for now. We, yes, we can investigate what the mechanism might be, but there are so many mechanisms, some of which we do understand and some of which we don't understand in terms of how we interact with our food. And sometimes we can pin it down and sometimes we can't. And maybe sometimes it's emotional, which is still physiological, but it could be related to something completely different that we Absolutely. just don't have a name for. Absolutely. So, you know, I've had clients that are sensitive to broccoli and garlic, which are two of the healthiest foods on the planet, right? Um, you know, there's, there's food sensitivity testing like IgG food sensitivity testing, which looks at one specific branch of the immune system. So it's just one piece of this enormous puzzle that we have to look at. And again, sometimes that's valuable information. Sometimes it's not so valuable. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all about, again, listening to the body and taking all these, this information, uh, as, as, as a big picture. Are there any foods that are out there that in your journey and process, I know you've kind of been pretty balanced with it all, but are foods that are just your kryptonite? Mm -hmm. That if you want to perform at your best, that you if, if you have a talk to give, if you're doing something amazing, or even if you're just in your regular daily life and you're showing up for your family and being there for your wife and your son, are there foods that are out there that either in a lot of frequency uh, or in some combination are kind of the kryptonite for you? Mm. Um, in terms of kryptonite, I don't think that there's any specific foods. I <laughs> maybe think kryptonite's maybe, a little extreme. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I understand what you're getting at. I think maybe I've reacted, cognitively speaking, to gluten in the past. Um, I strictly keep it out of my diet. I have for years now. But I think, you know, in the beginning of that process where it, like, snuck in a couple times, I think um, there was some cognitive issues in the following days. Like, I, I, I was, like, depressed for absolutely no reason. And I'm not, you know, really ever depressed. So it was, it was unusual. Um, I have had it, you know, people have put it in my food by mistake a couple times since then. I have not reacted. So who knows uh, why? But I think that would be the, the big one. From all the research I've read and all the experience I've had with clients, it's one of those foods that I don't think really anyone should consume. That's a bold statement. Um, but uh, there's just so many possible issues with it. Uh, I also uh, pretty much avoid cow's dairy 100%. 
um, cause it's not good for my skin as well. Mm, amazing. Uh, you have a, a young son we mentioned parents are always trying to work with picky eaters, not picky eaters. How do you help your kids get a, a different exposure stuff while not being that parent? They're going to have other people just, it's, you know, he's still young. This is your first kid, you know, but Hey, I don't have any kids. So you probably have some insight. What are some lessons that you have taken away in the short time that uh, you've had a chance to experiment at home? Right. So I would say just start as young as possible. I know some people listening are going to have older children. Uh, maybe some people are planning on having children. But whatever age it is, you got to start educating the palate and giving it a big vocabulary, right? If you want to be a proficient writer or proficient at the English language, you need to read lots of books and, and get a good vocabulary. It's the same with the palate and with health. Um, we've started right from the beginning giving, his name's Finley, giving Finley um, everything, everything and anything. So we give him um, uh, everything we eat we, we, and, and more. So, you know, we've given him sauerkraut. I'm just naming off some of the weird tasting things that people might think, hey, you gave that to a baby or you gave it to your child. <laughs> um, we give him sauerkraut. We would give him liver and still give him liver. We give him fish roe. We give him a whole bunch of different vegetables. Um, we, we of course give him some fruits, but we held off on sweet stuff for a very long time. Mm. Uh, I think the first sweet thing we gave him was like a sweet potato. Uh, but we didn't want those flavors to be the first thing, uh, entering his mouth. Uh, it was hilarious when we first gave him sauerkraut, we started with the juice and he would take a little bit on the spoon and you would just shudder. He would like just kind of shake his head. We have little videos of it, <laughs> but then he'd want more Yeah, and he'd want more, right? It's so, almost his version of almost like a tequila shot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have no idea what this stuff is. It's just like this stuff that they can eat. So we've given him everything. He rarely spits something out or rarely pushes something away. Now he's, he's just, he's almost 15 months. So he's starting to get a little bit more preferential on certain foods. Um, he absolutely adores bananas, right? Like he could just eat a ton of them. So we try to keep those to a minimum, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I would just say introduce a whole bunch of food yeah. as early as possible. Uh, just, you know, there was an interesting study I read about a number of years ago. It was done in 1939 where at this orphanage, they took, I think it was about 15 kids. Uh, I actually, there's a blog on it that I wrote about uh, on my website. They took 15 infants. Uh, they were between, uh, I believe, six and 11 months. And what they decided they would do is take 33 pre-selected foods, choose six for each meal, and allow the child to kind of choose which ones they wanted to eat. They would just put like the six plates in front of them. The nurses were given instructions not to feed anything to them, just to kind of help them if they chose it and see what would happen. So on that list of foods were things like, uh, like liver, like there's some, you know, normal things like, like, you know, dairy and certain grains and vegetables, but there was liver and cod liver oil and some not so good tasting stuff. And what they found was that those kids would choose what they wanted when they needed it. And there was even some observations in the study about, you know, when a kid, a kid was sick, they would choose more of the beets. Um, a couple kids came in with rickets and they had more of a preference for the cod liver oil, which mm -hmm. had vitamin D content. Um, and, and they, they, they looked at the health of these kids before and then after, and what they found was they were all in superb health by the end of the study. 
And it's super interesting because this study would have never been allowed today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, it's just an interesting experiment and that, that they'll often, you know, just choose it. And you don't have to resort to those convenience foods um, like those crackers. Like me, me and my wife joke about these things all the time. These, you know, teething cookies and these, these packets of food um, that, that are marketed as, as baby foods. And as foods, you should, you should give your kids. Yeah. It's almost like that study is a good example of like there's inside of all of us, there's that intuition that's there. We just have to know what options are available for us to really, you know, and what the real signs are, you know, are we hungry or do we need water? Absolutely. Do we want something sweet or like, is that sugar or also is that just a fresh bowl of mango? You know, is that finding the alternatives that are there, but the intuition inside of us is, um, is real. Uh, Josh, you have a ton of great articles on your website. We'll be linking over to it. Um, but if somebody's new and they're looking for to get started in terms of like uh, food, obviously, of course, they can come and work with you. And we'll talk about that in a second. They can find a functional medicine practitioner to help them. But any great resources uh, for reading that you personally recommend to a lot of your patients? Um, uh, that could be stuff that you've written or stuff that other people have written. All right. So one of the books I mentioned today uh, in relation to what we covered was Joe Robinson's book on eating on the wild side, which is a really awesome um, examination into where our food has come from and how to find the most uh, authentic versions of our food in the supermarket where mm -hmm. most people are getting their produce. So I think that's... that's so it's possible to find wild or more authentic foods in our normal supermarket. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just so know you don't necessarily have to go out and forage. Mm. Yeah, so that's a good one. Um, in terms of other resources, yes, my, my blog, there's lots on my blog. I have something called a functional reset program, which we're launching, where we take people through um, four or eight weeks, depending on the pace they wanted want to do it. Um, of nailing down the fundamentals, you know, the, the, the roots of all this stuff, you know, sleep and, and eating good foods and exercise movement. Um, there's a whole bunch of videos and they work with a coach and it's just a super awesome way to get to the foundation. It's amazing. And, and is that only based in Toronto? Anybody anywhere can join? Anybody anywhere. Anybody yeah, anywhere. Yeah. So we're online and we work with people all over the world. So that's super awesome. My wife actually has an incredible online um, culinary nutrition program mm. uh, where you can become certified there. Uh, it's about a four-month program, and that's all about food. And I'm on faculty on that one as well. And I also have a functional nutrition certification program online for people who want to uh, take it to the next level and dig a lot deeper in this topic. Amazing. And we'll link to all those. Uh, give us your website and your social media handles. How can people find out more about you? Right. So my website is joshgitalis.com. Um, you can find out everything you need to know about me there. I've got links to my Instagram and my Facebook. Um, on Instagram, I'm at Josh Gitalis, And on Facebook, I'm Josh Gitalis, clinical nutritionist. Josh, thank you for coming here and jamming out with us and bringing a little bit of your balanced approach and, and giving us those that perspective so we can see the world a little bit differently and helping us understand what I think is really one of the big ahas and big ideas from this is that it's all about what's right for you at the time that you're doing things, which is a big, uh, it's completely contrary to what we see out there in the world. And I think that if you don't leave this podcast with, with that idea, then, then, well, I hope you leave with that idea in addition to other ideas that are there. Uh, Josh, thanks for joining the Broken Brain Podcast. 
So awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.